Our goal today is to actually pick it up where we left off last time, and we're going to start in verse 8, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll go down to verse 10. And what we're looking at is our appropriate response, our appropriate response. Now, let me explain that and just remind you of the context. If you were with us the last couple of weeks, we uh, spent examining Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And if you're with us, then this is a review for you. But just by way of reminder, that sentence, recall it's all one long Greek sentence from chapter 2, verse 1 to all the way to verse 7. It's broken up in most English translations, but if you're studying in the Greek, it's all one continuous thought flow. It's one sentence. And it is arguably the heart of the book of Ephesians with this concept of our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, what God has done for us through the person and work of Christ in the process of redemption. And so much of what we saw in chapter 1 is kind of building up to these core ideas that were here presented in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And then really the rest of the book, in a lot of ways, is going to flow from these thoughts that were given back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So it's really the heart of the book. And we looked at verses 1 to 3, how it described our dismal condition apart from Christ. We gave a whole session to that. That's when uh, everyone showed up. Remember, that was the really bad snow day. And we showed up and and we talked about your dismal condition. And so we looked at how we're allured by this age, lost in our lust and condemned in our sin. And that was the the big ideas we unpacked through that first uh, section of that sentence, verses 1 to 3. But then last week, if you're with us, we looked at verses 4 through 7, the tail end of that sentence where that describes God's glorious intention for his children. And we looked at these three big verbs of what God is doing through the gospel and how he's made us alive in Christ. He's raised us up and seated us in the heavenlies and how these are both present realities to a certain degree, but ultimately they're future realities, what we will experience at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, that whole concept of the, the heart of the book and what God has done for us in the gospel is now being reflected upon in this section as really as well as the rest of the book. But the idea that connects what we looked at last time with what we're looking at today and in subsequent weeks and months is that these blessings that have been bestowed upon us through the gospel are granted completely and entirely upon the basis of God's grace. The reality is we don't earn these blessings. Recall, this is the, the hymn begins back in chapter 1, that blessed be God who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And the concept is that all that we have received because of the redemption of Christ is through the grace of God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And in fact, these verses we're going to explore today in particular are going to highlight this reality, that not only do we not, did we not earn it or deserve it, we shouldn't take credit in any way. We, we don't try to take credit for what God has done, but also we don't try to work it off in the sense that we, we, we need to somehow dress ourselves up where we feel like we deserve God's grace and God's favor. In fact, if that is our attitude, this text tells us that we are actually demeaning, insulting, and showing contempt for God's grace. Rather, what these verses are going to display for us, verses 8, 9, and 10, It's going to record the appropriate response that we ought have toward God's exceedingly abundant grace. How should we then respond? If God is so gracious as 
has been described. We sang about it in chapter one, right, the hymn. We, he prayed for us to understand it in, in chapter one. He then begins to teach us, again, the heart of the book, chapter two, verses one to seven. But how then are we to respond to God's grace displayed in the gospel? Well, I would suggest to you in our text this morning that there are three appropriate responses that we ought have. And you have them in your notes, but here they are. Number one, we ought respond with confident faith. Confident faith. Number two, we ought respond with humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. And then lastly, we ought respond in faithful service. Faithful service. If God is truly the God of grace, and if the gospel has given to us everything that it describes in verses two, or chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, then our only appropriate response is confident faith, humble gratitude, and faithful service. Let's read these verses together, and then we'll take these thoughts one at a time, all right? So if you've got your Bible, Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, as we contemplate these three verses this morning, we're going to contemplate these three big ideas, that our appropriate response is confident faith, humble gratitude, and faithful service. First of all, let's consider confident faith, how we are to respond in light of God's actions in the gospel. We are to respond with confident faith. Recognize that this idea is embedded in verse 8. He says, you're saved by grace, right? That's what we talked about the last several weeks and uh, months even, if you tag in what we looked at in chapter 1. But this has really been the big theme all the way up till now. But he says, you're saved by grace through faith. In other words, there is an appropriate response that we ought evidence, and that is faith. One of the big ideas that you're going to see threaded throughout uh, the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, right? Again, you can neatly subdivide the book into two major chunks, chapter 1 to 3, chapter 4 to 6. In chapters 1 to 3, these chapters are going to give a lot of focus to three primary characteristics of God. Now, you're going to see more than that, but the big ideas, the big characteristics of God that are going to be highlighted in these chapters are, number one, God's power. That was really the centerpiece of Paul's prayer back in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember this? He was praying that we would come to an awareness of God's power. Well, God's power is on display in the gospel. That was the emphasis of chapter 1. Here in chapter 2, we see the concept of God's grace, or, and that was really what we looked at last week, uh, particularly verse 4, when it describes, remember this is God's grand self-description, where he describes himself as rich in mercy and great in love, or as it says in verse uh, 5, and then we repeat it in verse 8, by grace you are saved. The idea of God's mercy, love, or grace is the big idea that is put forward in chapter 2 of the book. When we get there, we'll see in chapter 3 of the book that the big characteristic of God that is on display is God's wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 10, we'll talk about it more when we get there, but let me read it. It says, to the intent, and again, the, the whole idea is it's, it's describing Paul's role in preaching the gospel and how God has entrusted to Paul this, this task of preaching the gospel. But he's doing it, it says, to the intent, here's the purpose, verse 10, that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. 
the manifold wisdom of God. So we see the power of God, chapter 1, verse 19, the grace of God, chapter 2, really, I mean, 1, 2, 7, but particularly verse 7, where it talks about in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, we see the wisdom of God. These three big characteristics are important to Paul, and that's what he wants us to grasp as Christians. We, in order to respond to God in confident faith, to understand who he is, that he is genuinely trustworthy, that we can look to him for our soul's salvation, we need to understand these three grand characteristics of God. And it really forms what you might say are the basis of our confidence in God. Someone once expressed it this way, these three truths interrelating, they expressed it this way, that, quote, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best for us. And in his sovereignty or in his power, he has the power to bring it about, end quote. In other words, these, the interrelationship of these three characteristics of God is what causes God to be trustworthy, When we see through the gospel God's power to raise Christ from the dead, which is then, of course, foreshadowing his power to fulfill his promise to us, to bring us back to life from the dead. That idea of God's power displayed in the gospel, as well as his wisdom, that only God could figure out a way to make unrighteous sinners righteous, and yet God does that righteously. That concept, that great puzzle and enigma, God figured it out. And God in his wisdom is is on display in the gospel. But also we see his love, the foundation of it all. That God is motivated by his gracious love and mercy and grace. This kindness that he has toward us in Christ Jesus, that's the motive that he has in the gospel. And so when you see these big ideas, and, and again, there's, there's a lot that Paul has to say to unpack these big ideas, but what I want you to see is that in those, those first three chapters, Paul is really hammering away at the character of God and his love and his grace and his power and his sovereignty, etc. And in all of these aspects, if that is true of God, then why shouldn't we trust him? That's the idea. That's the idea. So although the sole basis for salvation is God's grace, Paul clarifies in verse 8 that it is received by people through faith, through faith, by means of faith, through the avenue of faith. Again, rereading verse 8, he says, by grace, you are saved, right? That's what he's just been expounding upon in the last chapter and a half. But he says, you are saved through faith. Then that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, This concept of the necessity of faith for salvation is something Paul has actually already touched upon. Do you remember back in chapter 1? In fact, just pop backwards a page or two in your Bible. Back in chapter 1 and verse 13, he already described this as the experience of his Ephesian readers. This was their experience, that when they heard the gospel, they believed. Do you remember this? Verse 13, chapter 1, he says, In whom also, and he's speaking of Christ, he says, You first trusted in Christ, in whom also you trusted... After that, you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We talked about that several weeks ago as we looked at this passage. But Paul has already highlighted the fact that the believers of, uh, in, of Christ in Ephesus have already experienced this reality. They, have, they are believers because they believe. They heard the truth of the gospel 
of salvation, and they responded appropriately in faith. This idea of responding appropriately to the gospel message by faith is a consistent Pauline thought. We won't take the time to go to all of these passages. Uh, it, It would take too much time here this morning, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. But Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 how we are saved by faith. He says the same thing in Romans 3, verse 22, verse 26, verse 30, same chapter. If we have time, we may pop over there later in in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 10, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Galatians, uh, again, 2, that's a repeat, (laughs) because that one's a really important one, so write that one down. Galatians 2, 16 is really important. Uh, and Philippians 3.9, 2 Timothy 3.15. And these are, again, just a sample list of how consistent this is throughout Pauline thought, that we are saved by grace through faith. In fact, one of the places where Paul develops this perhaps most is in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Paul makes it clear that faith is a heart response to hearing the content of the message of the gospel. In fact, pop over there just briefly. Keep your finger there. We will be back to Ephesians, I promise. But let's go just briefly and read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10 is really the core of what I'm after. But he says, Romans 9, or verse 10, chapter 10, verse 9, he says that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In fact, let's keep reading. He says, For the scripture says, Whosoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek, for the same Lord is over all rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 14, How then shall they call on him whom they had not believed? How shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and uh, bring glad tidings of good things. The idea of the, again, consistent throughout Pauline thought, the importance, necessity of faith in response to the gospel is, again, elaborated upon in many places, but perhaps most there in Romans chapter 10, where Paul is making it clear that this faith that he's talking about is a heart response to hearing the content of the message of the gospel. In this respect, faith then is an accepting response to God's revelation about himself through Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself throughout history. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 will say he's revealed himself at various times in various ways, but most explicitly God has revealed who he is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ is the greatest revelation of who God is. And when we see God in his character in Christ, our only, or our first, not our only, but our first appropriate response ought be to respond in faith. And again, this idea of responding in faith includes an acknowledgement of who Jesus is, right? We just read that, Romans 10. To confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, It includes an acknowledgement of who Jesus is as well as an admission of one's own sinfulness. It's an admission that I am how Paul describes me back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. That I am allured by this age. I'm lost in my lust, condemned in my sin. That is who I am without Christ, apart from Christ. That's who I am before God. 
It acknowledges Jesus as Lord, me as sinner. But then the recognition of Jesus' work on the cross, his atoning death, his resurrection, that is the solution. That it is the gospel, the good news of our salvation. The solution to our sin problem is in Christ. Faith acknowledges that, who Jesus is, who we are in our sinfulness, and how Jesus is the solution. He is the solution that God has offered. But this idea of acknowledging these truths is is more than simply mental assent. You've heard me say this before perhaps many times because I see this as a very important concept because the Bible sees it as a very important concept. James chapter 2 and verse 19, for instance, describes the nature of true faith by giving it a contrast. You're familiar with this. James chapter 2 and verse 19 says that we ought to have faith, true faith, that evidences itself. But then it warns that there are those, even the demons, that believe and tremble God, tremble at God. They say that, hey, you say you believe in God? Great, James says. The demons believe that there's a God. They even tremble before God. And the reality is, in that verse, it's highlighting the nature of true faith. That true faith is more than merely an acknowledgement, a mental assent that there is a God. The demons have that. It's even more than an emotional response because the demons not only know there's a God, they tremble at that God. But they're still not possessing saving faith. What is then saving faith? True faith is a willful faith that completely trusts Jesus as Savior and brings the lost person into a reliant relationship upon him, upon Jesus. I love to go to John uh, or James chapter 2 and John chapter 2 to illustrate this point. I just read James 2, 19, that you believe there's a God? You, great, good for you, but the devils also believe and tremble. Let me also point out in John chapter 2, a passage that, to me, when I first discovered this, it was astounding. It was kind of jaw-dropping for me because it describes a group of people that witnessed Jesus cleanse the temple early in his ministry. Jesus will cleanse the temple twice in his ministry, once at the beginning, once at the end. John 2 records the, uh, the first time Jesus cleanses the temple. It's a very ostentatious move, to say the least. brought him lots of attention. But not only did people come to listen to him, but they also came to be healed by him. In fact, in John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not believe or commit himself unto them. It's actually the same Greek word. The Greek word translated believe in verse 23 is the same Greek word translated commit in verse 24. And get this. There was a large crowd that was infatuated with Jesus. They were enamored by his miracles. They were impressed with his courage. And the text says that they believed on him, and yet Jesus did not believe them. He didn't commit himself unto them. Why? The text goes on to say, because he knew all men, and need not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus was smart enough to see through this temporary infatuation that the crowd had with him. And he knew that through the course of his ministry, which is so profound because, again, you fast forward three years from this event and Jesus will be in Jerusalem at another Passover. And the same crowd is going to be chanting something totally different. 
They're going to say, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Put Jesus on the cross. Right? That's what they're going to chant. Did Jesus have wisdom in seeing through their false facade? Sure. This is instructional for us. True faith, rather than being merely a mental ascent to the facts of salvation, is a willful faith. It chooses to trust in Jesus. It completely trusts in Jesus as our Savior. And this idea of, I like to say, a reliant relationship upon him, that I'm committing myself to him. I'm entrusting my care to him. That's what genuine faith is. What's interesting is as we work our way through the the scripture, the scripture is also clear of this reality. Paul's alluded to it back in chapter one. We read it a moment ago. But our faith is not only an acceptance of the gospel. It's a trust in God and his character as he's revealed himself through the gospel. But it's also a response to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a number of passages that highlight this. Paul is mentioning the spirit of God in the role of our illuminator, remember this, our teacher back in chapter one, he prays to God the Father so that the God the Spirit would open our eyes and help us understand. The scriptures are clear that the Holy Spirit convicts. The word convict is also the word that is elsewhere often translated convince, like a lawyer building a case, persuading of the reality of who Christ is and our lost condition before him. The Holy Spirit does this work according to John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. In John 6 and verse 44, Jesus also alludes to this act of the Holy Spirit by which he draws the lost person to willingness to trust in Christ. And this idea of what the Spirit is doing in our lives to open our eyes to the reality of our lost sinful state, to the trustworthiness of God and how Christ is the solution to our sin problem, that drawing, convicting work is what the Spirit does. And yet he works in the heart of a believer to bring us to the point of belief. The final responsibility still rests with that lost person to receive the gift of salvation by faith, without which there is no salvation. This is what Paul describes here in Ephesians 2, Galatians 2, right? That one that I mentioned before that is repeated twice. (laughs) Galatians 2.16 is a really important one. All throughout Pauline literature, he describes how we ought respond in faith to the gospel. So as we consider this idea of what God has done through us or through Christ for us, we see in verse 8, Ephesians 2 verse 8, that we are saved by grace through faith. Our first appropriate response is faith. But secondly, our second appropriate response is humble gratitude. What's interesting is if you're reading along in verse 8, Paul really could have stopped after the phrase, this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, right? He could have stopped right there and his point would have been adequately made. He says that we're saved by grace through faith, just so that we know, right? He wants us to make sure that we understand that it's by grace. So he says it in the negative. Not only is it positively saved by grace, but negatively, not of works, He says, this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, he pauses because he assumes that we don't sufficiently understand grace. So he has to state it in the negative, that not only are we saved by grace, but we're not saved by our works. This is not our own effort. It's not of ourselves. 
It is a gift from God. But then again, to be emphatic, he says in verse 9, it is not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. In other words, verse 9 reveals to us the second appropriately, appropriate response that we ought to have towards the gospel. Namely, that one of the many implications for justification by grace through faith is that of humility. That we ought to respond with humble gratitude to the grace of God. I cannot boast over a gift that has been given to me. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's a grace bestowed upon me by the loving kindness of God through Christ. And that is so important for us because it, it draws out every other implication that we'll see, in, or, or that implication, if you will, the implications of justification by grace through faith is what draws out every application of the Christian life. But part and parcel, first on the list that he wants us to understand is this idea of humility, humble gratitude, as I put it. The reality is God imputes righteousness through faith. He has always done it this way. He did it in Abraham's day. He did it in David's day, and he does it today. Paul will extrapolate much upon this idea in Romans chapters 3 and 4. But God has always saved this way. All the way back in Genesis 15, when God brings Abraham out and he has him look up at the stars and Abraham, who's, I love the old King James, you can't improve upon it. He says he's well stricken in years. Right, I love that. And the idea is he's old, right? The years have really beat him up. <laughs> but he is well stricken in years, he and his wife. They are well beyond the years of childbearing. And yet God brings Abraham out of his tent. He says, look up. He says, look to the stars, count them. Your descendants will be that many. And it says in Genesis chapter 15 and verse six that Abraham believed God. And so it was credited to his account as righteousness. And Abraham has a lot of failures of faith. Right? He has a lot of failures of actions and attitudes. Just read the surrounding chapters of Genesis. And yet when he looks up in the heavens and he believes the word of God, God credits it to him for righteousness. Paul will make the same argument in Romans chapter 4 concerning David. He will quote how David, through his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, placed himself beyond the capacity of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And yet he wallows in the grace of God that forgives him anyways in, in uh, Psalm 51. Paul's point is that God has always saved this way and he did it this way so that no one could boast about it, that no one could stand before God and somehow roll out their resume and say, it's all my doing, right? That maybe everyone else is damned to hell, but I made it out. I squeaked out because I'm just that awesome. God says, no, dare not boast before him. In fact, let's read about that just a little bit more. Romans chapter three, pop over there. Again, he's making the same point here in Ephesians two that he makes in, in, that he already made in Romans chapter three, but let's read it. He gives a little bit more ink to it in Romans chapter three, verse 21 to 27. And notice again, these concepts, Romans chapter three, I'm just going to read from verse 21 to verse 27. Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God without or apart from the law is manifested, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, told us that God was going to do this. But he's going to provide a means of righteousness apart from the law. That is, there will be a means by which I can be right before God. In spite of my sin, I can still be right before God. I can be in a righteous standing before God apart from the law. Or, as he says in Ephesians 2, not of works. Continuing, verse 22, he says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. We receive this righteousness, this right relationship with God, by believing in Jesus Christ. And this is available to all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. You can believe whether you're, you know, again, there's many in the room here that first came to a saving understanding of salvation at a very young age. Five, six, seven. Praise the Lord for that. There's many of you that came to a saving faith in Christ in your 50s or 60s. Way later. Some of you maybe are still waiting. (laughs) But the reality is, it's available to all by faith in Christ. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But now we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God sent forth to be, we sang about it earlier, right? His robes for mine. What a wonderful exchange. And whether you realize it or not, remember this is one of those really key words. It's that part of the song where you gotta get to the word propitiation. Propitiation one, and everyone kind of stumbles over that, right? Because we don't add enough syllables. <laughs> You're like, propitiation. Anyways, what is propitiation? Recall, it means to turn away the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God that is against, righteously against sinners who have rebelled against him. But faith in Christ is believing, as I said before, not only who God is, how he's revealed himself in Christ, our sinful condition before God apart from Christ, but also that Jesus is the solution, that Jesus is what fixes our sin problem. That's what verse 25 is getting at. He says, whom God has set forth to be. And the word set forth is a pretty strong word. Many believe that in that verb, Paul has in mind the idea of the crucifixion itself. That Jesus was nailed to a cross and set up for the world to see. He was put on display, strung up between heaven and earth. Why? To be the propitiation for our sin. He says, God has set him forth, set Christ forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. We'll unpack that concept a little more later, but I alluded to it earlier in the wisdom of God, that God in his wisdom found a way to justify ungodly people and yet to do so justly. But then look at verse 27. In Romans 3.27, he makes the same application that he's making in Ephesians chapter 2. Where is boasting then? Rhetorical question. Answer, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Trusting in Christ is not a work. It's us relinquishing our works and relying on his works. So when we do that, he says, where's boasting? It's excluded, as he puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. 
He says, we're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Why does God do it this way? So that it's not of works, lest any man should boast. That we would respond appropriately with this sort of humble gratitude. Before we move off this point, let me just contrast it with one more passage. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 18 real quick. What I want you to see is that this sort of humble gratitude is the only appropriate response to this big theme of salvation by grace through faith. But this is not the attitude that is exhibited if you believe that you have somehow earned or that you deserve God's favor. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus speaks a parable unto the crowd. Pick it up in verse 9. Luke 18 verse 9 says this, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Get this. Jesus is writing this or, or speaking this, and Luke later records it, for this purpose. He wants to speak to those who trust themselves that they're righteous. But when you trust yourself that you are righteous, when you actually think that you can work your way to heaven, that you can earn God's favor on your own, what's the result of that? Is it humble gratitude? No, look at the end of verse 9. They despise others. They despise others. You see this at work in all sorts of relationships in your own life. I speak of it often in marriage counseling because it happens between spouses all the time. When somehow, whatever it is, maybe it's how you manage the budget. Maybe it's your cleanliness standard. Maybe it's something else. But you look at yourself as more capable than your spouse and you get frustrated with them. And you despise them because you think, if they were just a little bit better, if they were just a little more disciplined, or the flip side, if he would just relax. And what's the reality? We, we both look at each other and we view ourselves as righteous because we have no fault in this relationship. If there's a problem, it's your fault. And so if there's a problem, what do we do? We despise our spouse. What is that? Jesus says that's self-righteousness. That you're a self-righteous jerk. That's what it means. That's what it is in the Greek. And, you know, I'm just saying. You're a self-righteous jerk. But the reality is, Jesus speaks to those who trust in themselves, thinking that they were righteous in and of themselves. Therefore, they despise everybody else. They look down their nose at everybody else, saying, if you were just as good as I was, you would do as good as I do. Then he gives an example. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other one was a publican. Now, again, you know the story. Pharisees... If you place yourself in this context where Jesus is speaking, the Pharisee versus the publican, in Jewish culture of this time, in this place, this day and age, these are you know, the two most opposite ends of the spectrum you could think of. That's the idea. The Pharisee, the word Pharisee literally means separated one. They were viewed as the, the premier, you know, best of the best, cream of the crop, the best society has to offer. These guys made a profession of law-keeping. In fact, many of them did not even have a secular job. They were supported by tithes and funds, donations of other people, in order that they would live the law perfectly, even in, on behalf of the people. And the people revered the Pharisee. These guys, boy, if anyone's going to get into heaven, it's these guys. They are meticulous in their law-keeping. Well, then you have the publican. And you know the story. The word publican actually comes from Latin, it's the Latin word publicani, 
and it means a public servant. It's a tax collector. He's the guy that's going around collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. Nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody likes tax collectors. But particularly when you're a Jew and you're paying taxes to a foreign government that is oppressing you and have subjugated you as a people, then you really don't like to pay your taxes. And you really don't like tax collectors. And many times these tax collectors were known. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, right? I can relate to that guy. (laughs) Climbed up in the sycamore tree for Jesus he wanted to see. (laughs) Can we sing the song together? No. Just kidding. That's our closing song. No, I'm just kidding. But Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but what was he? He was a tax collector, and they hated him. Why? Because he was a cheat. Because maybe you only owed X amount to the government, but he came and he said, well, you owe X amount plus 10%, maybe 30%, you know, because it's my commission. And he would skim off the top. These publicans were notorious and, you know, for, for corruption, and they were hated by the Jewish society. So here's the two characters. Jesus says, one's a Pharisee, one's a publican. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus, and I love the next two words. He prayed thus with himself. I like to say, his prayer didn't get higher than his own head. You know what I'm saying? He didn't send this prayer to heaven. He's just talking to himself. He stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And this is where it gets really bad. But he says, even as this publican. Right? I mean, he singles out the dude. And, it's, and it says, and Jesus actually alludes this elsewhere in the book of Matthew, how they love to stand on the street corners and make long public prayers. He is not saying this in his head. He is speaking this out loud. All right? It's like me asking someone to stand up and me saying, God, thank you for not making me like this loser over here. All right? And naming them, right? I'm not, I wasn't pointing at anyone in particular. I'm just saying, stick with me. But the idea, that's what the Pharisee does. He says, thank you for not making me like this publican. And then he rolls out his resume. I, fight, I fast twice a week. He says, I give tithes of all that I possess. In other words, he views himself as righteous. That surely God would receive him. But verse 13, Jesus continues the account. He says, The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but he smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, again, if Jesus stops there, everyone would be like, Oh, yeah, yeah, that publican, boy, good luck, but I'm, I'm siding with the Pharisee. And then Jesus shocks the crowd in verse 14 by saying, I tell you, this man, who? The publican. This man went down to his house, there's our word, justified, made righteous before God, declared righteous before God. He says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Wow. I mean, does it get much clearer than that? I mean, Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Man, he's good at that. But the reality is, this is the concept that Paul is wanting us to get, is that when we see the grace of God displayed in the gospel, our first response ought to be confident faith. God is who he says he is. He can genuinely save me because look at what he's done in Christ. Look at his power. Look at his love. Look at his wisdom. I can believe in him. I can trust myself 
to his care. But then I also secondly respond in humble gratitude that it is not me that earned this. I don't deserve this. This is entirely, completely of God's grace. Which then leads to the third response. Namely, that we ought respond in faithful service. Notice in verse 10 that Paul goes on to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, don't miss the thought flow. Paul has just repudiated the role of good works for earning salvation. That was verses eight and nine. Anathema on that idea. That's what Paul is saying. But he then turns around in the very next verse, in verse 10, to extol their role, that is, the role of good works, as a necessary outgrowth of that very salvation that he just finished talking about. I like to say, don't get the cart before the horse. Works do not save, but a saved person works. Do we work to earn our salvation? Do we work to somehow work off our debt and make ourselves acceptable before God? Have you ever, have you ever seen this happen? I mean, we, we do it all the time where you're trying to be gracious to someone and you're just trying to give them a gift. And then they turn around and they say, oh, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Right? And it's like, well, I mean, thanks for the gesture, but it's not a gift anymore. Like, I don't want you to pay it back. Like, I'm giving it to you. It's, remember the word in the Greek? We talked about this on Christmas Day. Remember this? The word gift in Greek is the word that's connected. The root word is the same root for grace. I'm trying to evidence my grace to you. I just, I love you. I just want to help you out. You don't need to pay me back. And that idea of trying to always spurn grace, in other words, we're not humble enough to accept it and realize we need it. Rather, we, we want to lift ourselves up and say, well, I somehow deserve it or I'm going to work it off. Now, I get that, Right? book of Proverbs talks about not being a lazy person, right? I'm, I'm, I'm really cranking up for my sluggard sermon coming up in Proverbs chapter six. We're not supposed to be sluggards. All of that is true, but when it comes to the realm of salvation, Paul is talking explicitly that we do not earn God's favor. We can't, like it's impossible because it's not your good deeds that get you into heaven. It's your bad deeds that keep you out of heaven. So it's not more good deeds. I don't just keep piling up more good deeds to try and ultimately outweigh my bad and squeak in. It doesn't work that way. I need forgiveness. I need a cleansing. I need a propitiation for my bad deeds. Well, that's what God has provided in Christ. Yet on the other hand, Paul says that these good works are what we're saved unto, not by, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. He says it this way. He says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, the word workmanship is, is, is really cool Greek word. I wish we had more time to, to give to it in a word study, but it's the idea of something that's been carefully crafted. Sometimes it's translated handiwork, or sometimes uh, some translations even use the word finger work, you know, like a potter, that's what Isaiah 29 is actually talking about, a potter working clay and coming out with just, just this ornate, uh, you know, picture of, of, of a, a pot. I was, I don't remember how old I was. I was, I was, uh, 
I want to say maybe early high school, late junior high, somewhere in there. My my parents, we went to some, I don't even remember where we were. I think it was like a Renaissance fair or something. And there and there was a guy doing glass blowing. You ever seen glass blowing? Oh, it's so cool. Right? He's got this big long shaft that's hollow, so because you can blow on one end. And he sticks the end of it in molten glass, right? I mean, the glass, he's, he's boiling or baking it down with all the sand and I don't know all that that you do with it, but it's, it's this ball of lava is what it looks like. And he sits there and he rolls the end of this stick in it, pulls it out, and then he blows on it to get a bubble in that glass. And then he sits there and he flips it like this to stretch it out. And, and then as he's, and if it gets too cold, then he, got, he has to put it back in so that it stays malleable. But then he wants to cool it off in order for it to keep its shape. And then as he's blowing on it and he's spinning it and then he gets it off the end of that shaft and then he starts working it with his fingers. And, he, and one guy, he took the, his fingers like this and he spun it and he drug it up the, the vase and, and it became this really cool spiral that, that had his finger marks all the way up. And, and then of course, he, he would take different things if he wanted it to, to look cool and you know, he'd take like glitter or something like that and he'd put it in there right, to, to change the color of the glass. And I was gorgeous. It was so cool just to sit. I was just mesmerized watching this guy do his craft and presenting his masterpiece. That's what the word means. It's describing how it's, it's describing this work that God is doing in us. God is the one with skill. It's his skillful labor. It's his intelligent design, but he's working us. We're the molten glass. He is the master craftsman. And he's working to make us the shape he wants us to be. And this grand idea is in our text described as a new creation, in fact. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This is a profound idea, but it describes us as a new creation in Christ which parallels, it likens us with God's first creation. In other words, you might say God's greatest masterpieces are the original creation. You look around at the marvel that God created, the beauty, the intricacy of design, the intelligence, the wisdom that's on display. And then Paul here is likening our recreation, what God is doing in us to shape us back into what he intentionally, you know, originally intended in the original design when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. James chapter 1, verse 18, describes this process that God is working in us. It uses that. Here, Paul calls us the masterpiece of God. James, same basic idea, but he's calling us the first fruits of God's creation, which is strange when you think about it, because it's like, wait a minute, I thought creation was here before I was. But how am I then a first fruit to God's creation? He's talking about the second creation. He's talking about the new heavens, the new earth. He's talking about what God is doing in and through the gospel and how he is making, he's shaping, he's forming us the way he wants us to be. Why? So that when we enter the new creation, that we will fit. That we'll fit, we'll belong. Because God made us fit. He's changed our shape He's made us acceptable. That's a really cool idea. My, my mentor, Chuck Crabtree, also used to say, sanctification is really important. The idea of progressively growing in Christ like this is really important so that you don't have whiplash when you get to heaven. You know what I'm saying? 
In other words, gradually work into it. Become more and more like Christ so that when you get to heaven, right, it's not like, whoo, oh, that hurt. But the idea is God is shaping us for later. He's, he's working in us. What's so profound is we could really get lost in this, and I don't have time, but it's, it's fascinating how God's first creation was meant to display the glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 1 and through about verse 4 describes that. And yet men suppress that very glory. We ignore, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we ignore the glory that God has displayed in creation. And we credit it to chance, evolution. It's a cosmic accident. We steal God's glory for his great work in creation. But Psalm 19 tells us that was the point of creation, so that God would be seen as glorious, wise, powerful, etc. But that is also true of us. God's second creation, you and I, that he's working on right now, God's second creation is also meant to bring him glory. That we, that's our function, that's our purpose, is we're meant to display and declare the glory of God. We are God's masterpiece. His wisdom, his power, his love is nowhere better seen than in our lives. That's what Paul is saying. And I think it's so profound how Jesus had a central role in the first creation, according to John chapter 1, and how he has a central role in the second creation. Right here, according to Ephesians 2, Colossians 3 will make the same point. He is working to create us anew. But the question remains, how do I display the glory of God as his new creation? How is this supposed to work? Answer, according to Paul, by the good works which he has ordained for us to do. Where do we see these good works? What are they? What shape does God want me to be in? What is he shaping in my life? What is he trying to accomplish? That's Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Paul's going to elaborate upon this. What are the works that God has designed for us to do? How is it that God has designed the Christian life to function? Glad you asked, because Paul's going to go on and on for three chapters about it. And how we are to operate within the, the body of Christ, the community of believers. How we're supposed to operate when we're out and about in a lost and dying world. How we're to function as light. How we're to live and walk in love and in unity and harmony in our relationships. How we're supposed to live in the midst of our marriage Ephesians chapter 5, how we're supposed to live if we're a parent, if we're an employee, an employer. He gets down to the nitty-gritty and he talks about all the walks of life and how God has designed it to be. This is really profound when you consider it, and especially when you contrast it with the religion of Paul's day. Think about this briefly with me before we transition to our closing song. Recognize this purpose of God's redemption and empowerment of believers stands in strong contrast to many of the religions of Paul's day. And not just Paul's day, but our day. The orientation of pagan religions tended to look more self-serving. That is, we would approach the deity with such goals as, how do I benefit from this God? How do I get this God to make my cattle fertile or my crops productive or whatever? What can I do to keep the God from striking me with some punishment? It was ultimately self-serving. So much of the religion of the world today is the same thing. We're looking for a way. We're looking for a benefit. Like I say, so many people treat religion like shopping for car insurance. I want the highest benefit for the lowest cost. 
That's what I want. And that's where, and we treat religion that way. But the orientation of the gospel is different. According to the Apostle Paul, the orientation of the gospel is entirely different because it's not predicated on you do this for me and I'll do this for you foundation. It's not a give and take, an exchange. Rather, it's based on a self-sacrificial gift of God. He gave everything and we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But now he expects his people to give and to love and to do good deeds while expecting nothing else in return. That God showed us grace, so now we exhibit grace. We live like God wants us to live. So here's my question for you. Three questions, in fact. As you ponder this. First, to understand the appropriate response, verses 8, 9, 10, we need to understand the greatness of our salvation. That's verses 1 through 7. In other words... Have you pondered long enough? And the answer is always no, because there's always more meditation we can do. But nonetheless, do you realize the greatness of your salvation? Have you thought long and hard on what God has done for you in the gospel and the personal work of Christ? That's Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7. But now, are you responding with appropriate gratitude and humility and faith? When you see what God has done through the gospel, do you believe that or do you reject it? Do you spurn it? Do you respond with humble gratitude, an appropriate sort of humility? Or do you still think in your heart of hearts that you deserved it? And then lastly, are you motivated to actively serve God and others as an outflow of your redemption? If God has given me free grace, am I willing to offer free grace to others? Or am I like the Pharisee who is self-righteous and I despise everybody else. And I make you work on a checklist before I show you favor. Are we actively motivated to serve God and others as an outflow of our redemption? Do we see this as our appropriate response? Well, with that in mind, Daniel and I were going back and forth on what song would be most appropriate. And there's, a, again, a bunch of them. But this is a song, one of my favorites growing up, and I, I like, it's kind of a, a quick song, right? It's, uh, it's, it's got a, a very triumphant march cadence almost to it. It's the song, I Am Resolved. Let me walk you briefly through the lyrics, and then we'll, we'll have Daniel come up, and you'll stand and we'll sing. It has four verses, and here's the first verse. He says, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. That's what Paul was praying for in Ephesians chapter 1, right? He was praying for us to look heavenward, look at what God has done for us in the heavenlies. So he says, be charmed not by this world's delight, but things that are higher, things that are nobler. The chorus, which will be repeated four times, says this, I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. Second verse, I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He hath the words of life. Third verse, I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth. Why? Because he is the living way. Last but not least, fourth verse, I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. That's what God has designed us for. He's in the, war, he's in the process, right? He's designing us but we're entering the kingdom. We're leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me. Foes may, be, may beset me. But still will I enter in. 
Can you sing that with me? Come on up, Daniel. Why don't you lead us? Everyone stand up. Daniel will come and lead us in the song, I am resolved no longer to linger. Then we'll close in prayer and be dismissed. Amen. Here we go. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to Him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to Thee. I am resolved to the Savior, leaving the pound and strife. He is the true one, he is the just one, he hath the words of life. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth, he is the living way. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to Thee. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me, still will I enter in. I will hasten to and so glad and free Jesus greatest highest I will come to thee thank you my friend let's close in prayer father thank you for this glorious day the glorious gospel of Christ and we ask that you would help us as we ponder that glorious gospel to respond appropriately in faith humility and service Father, we thank you for these very precious and important truths. We pray that they would not be lost upon us, that you would help these ideas to shape our hearts and our minds, our affections, our actions from here forward as we go about our task this week. Bless us in our workplace, in our homes, in our relationships. Lord, help us to honor you with all that is said and done. And we commit ourselves to you afresh. In Christ's name, amen.